Matthew chapter 1, um, we're going to be uh, looking at verse 18. Uh, if you've seen this um, documentary on Netflix called Last Breath, um, I watched this documentary a couple months ago, could not watch it uh, because I couldn't breathe while I was watching it, had to fast forward through a lot of it, but it's about an event that happened in September uh, 2012 in the North Sea with a couple of uh, deep sea divers, uh, Chris Lemons and some of his buddies. Um, they are deep sea divers that work in oil fields um, under, under the sea, and they were working about 100 meters down in this oil field uh, in the North Sea, and um, basically the way these divers operate, it's an, it's an incredibly dangerous um, job. They, they basically live under pressure on the boat because when they go down to dive, they have to have a body that's acclimated to the pressure for a very long time. And so they live under pressure. And then when they go dive from the boat, uh, specifically in September on the North Sea, they send down what's called a bell. It's like this pod, and it can fit about two to three people in this pod that, that go down a ways, and this pod is connected to the boat above. And then out of that pod is when they actually make their dive. The pod is, um, it, it's not underwater. They're, they're basically uh, br breathing air that's being fed into the pod, whatever. They put on all of their gear, and then they jump out of the pod uh, to go dive and work on these, uh, these oil structures. I don't know, oil rigs. I don't know what you call them when they're underwater uh, or what exactly they're working on. But they basically go make this dive 100 meters um, under the North Sea. And uh, the boat above has this uh, digital system that keeps it where it needs to be. So even in super rough seas, super violent seas that can happen on the North Sea, um, this boat will stay exactly where it needs to be. Because you can imagine, underneath it is this tether to this pod, and then from that pod you have your divers. Now the divers are connected to what they call uh, umbilical cords. Okay? Um, these cords strap, they, they hook into them, they go to the pod, which then the pod goes to the boat. Uh, these cords feed oxygen to them to be able to breathe. Uh, these cords feed warm water that circulates through their suits because you can imagine it's, it's freezing waters, and so it feeds warm water to keep them uh, warm. It feeds power for their lights so that they can see anything. Um, it, it's their communication lifeline. It's, it's everything. So naturally they call it um, an umbilical cord. Well, what happened on in September of 2012 is a true story. They're 100 meters down uh, on the ocean floor work, doing their work uh, on a dive, and the boat above is in violent seas in the North Sea, and it loses all of its uh, system, uh, its digital system, to keep it where it needs to be. Okay, so it's not anchored. Um, it, it, it loses the whole system. It just goes out. And so in this violent sea, this boat just begins to drift. Well, when the boat drifts, it's just, it starts to drag the bell, that pod, underneath it. That, that pod is just hanging underneath it. And that pod is now connected to two divers 100 meters down, connected by their umbilical cord. And it's just drifting and starting to pull them. So they send an alarm down to basically say, we've lost all of our systems, and you have to get back to the bell immediately. You need to get back up to the bell, get in the bell, and then we'll pull you in. So as Chris and uh, his other co-worker buddy um, are work making their way back on this huge structure underneath uh, the water, like a movie, Chris's umbilical cord gets caught. Now in the documentary, you see a lot of this footage, okay? Um, his, because they have cameras on a lot of their equipment, his cord gets caught. His buddies does not. And the boat is drifting. Like there's no stopping this boat from drifting. Um, and so his cord's getting tighter and tighter and tighter until he basically starts to lose uh, he loses his communication. He loses his power because it's getting stretched so, so uh, tightly. And then, boom, uh, like a shotgun goes off, it pops. And he is now 100 meters underwater, falls to the ocean floor. His buddy gets dragged away. 
and he has, well, he has five minutes left because they carry these reserve emergency tanks of, of air, and they only last for about five minutes. Now, I said in the first service, seems like an oversight to me. I would take a tank that can last a couple of days, but uh, that's basically what they do. So they have these emergency tanks that last five minutes. Now, he can see nothing. It's getting super cold because now he doesn't have the hot water. He, everything goes silent because he has no communication now. He can probably just hear himself breathing, and he can't see anything. It's pitch black, and he's on the ocean floor. And he thinks to himself, in, in knowing he's got about five minutes left of life, um, my best shot is I'll get back to the structure, but he has no idea where it is. You might as well be in the Sahara Desert, blind. He has no idea where it is, so he literally just picks a random direction, and he starts walking, not knowing if he's headed out into the middle of nowhere or he's going to hit the structure. Well, boom, suddenly he runs into the structure. So he climbs his way back up on top, and uh, probably at this point a minute, two minutes left of oxygen, and he just basically makes peace with death and it's pitch black, and he's starting to probably go numb and starting to lose feeling in his body, and he's looking up into the absolute darkness, hoping for an impossible rescue. Hoping for an impossible rescue. I mean, he's got two minutes left. Is anyone coming? So he's just looking out into the, the blackness, the nothingness of the sea, hoping for what he probably knew is an impossible rescue which is why he, he essentially makes peace with death. Now, uh, just to let you breathe, um, about 38 minutes later, they go down to retrieve his body. They pull him into the, the bell, and they start giving him mouth-to-mouth. He wakes up like nothing happened. Pretty wild. Like nothing happened. They don't know why. They think his body was so saturated with oxygen because they live under pressure, and they think because he was so cold, his body just went into hibernation that he woke up, no brain damage, just talking like normal, like, like nothing happened, all right? Now, I tell you that so you can breathe. That's not the point of the, the illustration. Here's my question. What do you do, what do you do when your life feels like you are being suffocated by the dark, cold, black nothingness of murky waters? What do you do when life just feels like you're staring out into nothing? You know you need a rescue of some kind, but it's, it's impossible. There's just no rescue coming. What do you do when, when you feel nothing? Like you wish you could feel something at all, like even if it was pain. I wish I could just, if I could feel pain, it would remind me that I'm alive, but I just, I just feel nothing. I just feel numb. And life is just dark and bleak, and, and it's quiet, and it just, it just feels like I'm in the midst of nothingness. What do you do? What do you think? What do you believe in, that, in those moments? What do you, what do you hope for? Uh, that is what the virgin birth is all about. So please stand with me for the reading of God's word. find it fitting that I'm filling in for Steve Smith today when I was the one who fought really hard for Advent um, sermons, so it's a good one. Um, anyway, we are reading from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your inspired, inerrant, perfect word. I pray that you would preach to us this morning. You would speak us back to life again as we always say and as we always pray and hope that you would give us life by your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the context of this story, I want us to pretend like we've never read it. Um, because when we hear Mary and Joseph around Christmas time, right, um, we hear Mary and Joseph, they're already special to us, right? Many of us know, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, you, you, you probably know the story of Mary and Joseph, um, and so they're already very special to us, but we have to, we, we kind of have to pretend this morning like we, we've maybe never read this story to really understand the context of what's actually going on, because here's the reality. When we read of this woman, Mary, and this guy, Joseph, who are betrothed, in reality, this is a random couple, right? You're, you're reading through the Bible, and then you hit Mary and Joseph, and, and you go, who, who is that? And you find out it's not, it's not like a king and his wife. It's not leading religious leaders of the day. It's not the circuit Bible teachers, right? He preaches, and, and she sings, you know, and everyone knows them across the land, you know, that's not, that's not Mary and Joseph. Um, there's nothing here about Mary and Joseph to pique our attention, in other words. There's just nothing here about them that goes, oh, wow, I want to pay attention. Relative to human history, they're like nobodies. Just Mary and Joseph, Tom and Susie. You know, relative to human history, they're nobodies as far as we know when we get here if we've never read this. And they're from a place called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth in John 1, uh, uh, this guy Nathaniel says this of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth had this reputation of like, like it wasn't Los Angeles, right? It wasn't New York City. It was Waco pre-Chip and Joanna Gaines, okay? <laughs> that is Nazareth. Like what comes out of Waco? Well, we had this super famous cult. We had like this biker shootout. Um, y- you know, like that's, that's Nazareth pre-Chip uh, and Joanna Chip and Joanna Gaines, the common grace that God gave our city with them is enormous. Um, so this is a couple of nobodies from a nothing town, like a nothing town, a town with actually like a negative uh, reputation to some degree, and they're kids. Mary and Joseph at this point are probably something like 15, 16 years old. Some people have argued younger. Okay, so these are, these are kids, and they're not even married yet. You know, it's not even like, are they married? You know, they got something going on. No, they're not even married yet. They are betrothed. This is more serious than an engagement. Um, uh, in, in our day, in our language, it, to break it off, to break up their relationship, it would require a divorce, okay? But they haven't consummated it yet. They're not, they're not married um, in the way that we would totally understand that. So there's just, there's just nothing going on. It's just an ordinary, random couple, nothing to see here relative to human history, as far as we know, kind of a bunch of nobodies, and we might go, well, cool, maybe, 
well, I don't know, what, what's this story about maybe like Mary is pregnant with quad, quadruplets? Like, is that the exciting thing going on? No, actually, she's a virgin. All right, okay, so, okay, so there's like, what's going on here? Nothing here really piques our attention. And the point is that this context of this story just screams nothingness. Nothing to see here, nothing to pique your attention. It's just, it's just very, it's just very ordinary. And I personally relate to it. Like, when I, when I take inventory of my life, I personally relate toward, to it. I mean, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like a nobody. Like, relative to human history, if my great-grandkids remember my name, that's a big win, right? Um, often, I feel like, I mean, there's nothing, nothing much going on in my life. I'm kind of a nobody, very, for, like, I'll be easily forgotten, right? Just kind of, and, and to take it to the real negative uh, place, I mean, there's times that I, I just feel nothing. I just feel like numb about life, about God, about the Bible, about whatever. Right? Just, kind of, just kind of numb, just kind of nothingness. And I think that you can relate too. I mean, I think that we can all relate to this. And, I, and, and what proves it to me is that Instagram is worth about $100 billion. Facebook is worth $104 billion. I think I know that you you and I can feel like nothing and feel like nobodies because Snapchat is worth $20 billion and Twitter just a measly, tiny, crumbs off the table, $4 billion. I mean, we desperately want to avoid nothingness. And so I've got something to say. So Twitter's worth $4 billion. Let me prove that, that something about my life is worth showing to the world. And so Instagram is worth $100 billion. Not only can I relate to the reality of just kind of nothingness and, and nobodyness, I want to avoid it with everything in me. I want to be somebody, I want to be a big deal, and I want to avoid any notion of nothingness with everything in me. Right? And I think that I think that many of you are with me. Now, this nothingness of this context is intensified because Mary's pregnant. Mary is pregnant, and Mary should not be pregnant because Mary is a virgin. They haven't consummated their marriage yet. So Mary's a virgin. She should not be pregnant. If, if that doesn't biologically make sense to you, all of the Song of Songs podcasts are online, and you can listen to a couple of those, and uh, birds and the bees, I'm sure, will get hit somewhere. Um, at this point, Mary is about four months pregnant, and so she's starting to show, and Joseph's whole world just came crashing down. Now, you might think, why didn't Mary tell him? Why didn't Mary tell him, like, hey, I had a dream. I'm going to be pregnant uh, of the Holy Spirit. Well, imagine how that would fly, right? Hey, Joseph, I'm married, but don't worry. Nothing bad here to see. It's from the Holy Spirit. Right, Mary. Okay. Um, Mary's showing, and Joseph's whole world comes crashing down on top of him because um, cross-culturally, you and I know that because of our warped uh, view of singleness, we often think of singleness as less than. Like when you're single, you really haven't made something of your life yet. You really haven't made a name for yourself yet. And so marriage oftentimes becomes this thing, like if I can get married, and if I can build a family and have kids, I can finally be something. I can finally be someone in the world. And so maybe, maybe uh, when Joseph finds out that all of that is going to be stripped away from him, all of it has now been stripped away from him, that he's going to go back to being this single dude from a, a, a nothing town, kind of this nobody, you can imagine his whole world prob probably came crashing 
down upon him. And so all of this nothingness is intensified by sin. Because it's one thing to feel nothing. Like, I just, I just feel nothing. I, I, I feel like nothing, but I don't know why. It's one thing to feel that kind of in a vague way. And it's another thing to feel that because of sin, is it not? Like when sin enters the equation and you feel like, man, when I see my sin and my darkness, I just feel like nothing. I feel like a nobody. It's another thing when someone else's sin confirms that. Deep down in my bones, I feel like a nobody. I feel like nothing. And then someone sins against me in such a way that confirms it. Yeah, you are nothing. And how much more your spouse committing adultery could communicate. Yeah, Joseph, what you feel deep down in your bones, that's true. You're, you're really nothing. You're not of much value. Now, you might say, well, Colin, this is just the appearance of sin. There is no actual sin here. She didn't commit adultery, and that's true. But if we think that sin hasn't touched them, we're just not looking hard enough. Like, if we think that lust, which Jesus calls adultery, has no place in Mary's heart, if we think that lust, which Jesus calls adultery, has no place in Joseph's heart, we're just not thinking hard enough. We're not looking hard enough. The context that we're looking at is a context of sinners. These are sinners, just like you and me. This is a world of sin and a world of darkness and a world of condemnation that we're reading about here. These are sinners just like uh, you and me. Now, this is no surprise that this story um, starts out with this kind of screaming reality of nothingness, because if you scan, if you look, if you have an open Bible or phone or whatever, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he starts out with this long genealogy, and he starts like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, that word genealogy in the Greek is the same word that titles the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And what is Genesis about? I mean, when you go back to Genesis 1, you hit nothing. You hit a bunch of nothing. Nothing but God, of course. And then when you read in Genesis, you find that out of nothing, God created. And then if you go a little further, you find that, well, the situation is now uh, more intense because now it's not just nothing, right? The situation is something that is now deeply flawed and broken and sinful and twisted and warped. So uh, when, when Matthew uh, points us back to Genesis, there was nothing and then there was something. All of a sudden we read of kind of a bunch of nothing, especially when you're talking about a virgin body. And then guess what? There's something. The virgin is pregnant. Where there should be nothing going on, there is something incredible going on. Now, Joseph, he learns this, and he's considering and figuring out, how, how do I divorce her quietly? How do I make this where she doesn't come under just a massive amount of shame um, and embarrassment? And as he's considering things, look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold. Matthew puts in there the word behold. In other words, pay attention. Pay attention to the nothingness. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In the midst of the nothingness, in the midst of a world of sin and chaos and darkness and condemnation, God shows up. And Joseph hears this universe-shaking, universe-creating announcement, the Savior that you learned about in Genesis 3, that we've been looking for, he's here. The Savior is here. Precisely when we think grace won't show up, when rescue's impossible, isn't that when grace always shows up from God? Right when we think in the middle of nothing, all of a sudden there's something. The virgin is pregnant. The eternal son of God, the eternal son of God has stepped into our nothingness. The virgin is pregnant with new life. The son of God has taken on flesh and blood, just just like you and me. A baby, her baby, this baby is alive with new life. Righteous, holy just like you and me in every single way, yet without sin. This baby, this Savior, is God and man. Isn't this how grace always shows up? It shows up in impossible places, impossible ways, unexpected times, unexpected places, in unusual, weird ways. Just when we think, There's no way God could show up here. He does. Now, this sounds like good news so far, but here's the question. Why is Jesus here? Why is the eternal Son of God here? Is he here for judgment? Is he here to judge us rightly in our sin? Is he here to give us a plan? Here's a 10-step process that you can save yourself, that you can rid yourself of, of sin. Why is he here? Well, his name is Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. In other words, he's not here this time to out of nothing create something. He's here to address the something that is now flawed and broken in sin, and he's here to fix it, and he's here to save, and he's here to bring new life and make all things new. He's here to save his people from their sins. God shows up. God shows up to bring new life where there's not even potential for life. Not even potential. That's where God goes to say, I'll bring life here. I'll bring grace here. I'll bring forgiveness and mercy here where you think it's absolutely impossible. This is what God has always been up to. All throughout the Bible, this is what God has always been up to. And that's why Matthew, in verse 23, quotes Isaiah. Because Isaiah spoke of this. Isaiah spoke of this rescue and this grace. If you look at verse 23, Matthew quoting says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I want you to imagine uh, that, I want you to imagine your favorite artist, your favorite uh, musician, your favorite um, uh, athlete, whoever it might be. For me, what came to mind is Derek Jeter. Uh, Jeter was a Yankee. If you hate the Yankees, it's because you ain't the Yankees, okay? Um, uh, I want you to imagine uh, you get tickets to the show uh, the, 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 uh, the baseball game, whatever, and you get this VIP pass um, that, that you get to hang out with whoever that person is, Adele, Bruce Springsteen, whatever, the Beatles, and you get this pass, and you get to hang out with them the whole time. Anywhere they can go, you can go. Anywhere Jeter goes um, in his beautiful pinstripes, you can go, right? Um, and, and all you gotta do is show that pass, right? So when Jeter walks through the door into the clubhouse, they're like, hey, what's up, Jeter? 
I don't know what they called him. Um, uh, what's up, Derek? And he walks through, and then Colin starts to walk through behind him. They're like, whoa, whoa, bro. Hey, you're a nobody. What are you doing walking in the clubhouse? And I go, well, hey, I got this pass. I'm with him. They're like, you're with him? And Jeter's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. Right? And so I get to do this. You get to do this all over the place with whoever it is. You just constantly, I'm with him. I'm with him. You'd feel super important, right? You'd, you'd feel super valued. And this is kind of like the gospel. We get to say, I'm with God. I'm in Christ. But the gospel is, in one sense, bigger than that and more beautiful because the gospel is Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, imagine you're walking around with Jeter and he keeps going, hey, I'm with him. I'm with him. With me? Yeah, I'm with him. Suddenly, I just felt really valued. I just, I feel really important. Because I'm not just saying I'm with him. Now he's saying, no, I'm with you. The virgin is pregnant with Emmanuel, God with you. In all of my sin, in all of my dirtiness, yeah, I'm with you. In all of my nothingness, yeah, I'm with you. But I feel nothing. I, I, don't, even, I don't even feel love for you, God. I'm with you. The virgin is pregnant with Emmanuel, God with you, God with us. And he is so with us and he is so with you that he took on your flesh and blood. And he lived the righteous life you should have lived. He did it for you. And then he went to your death on the cross, taking your condemnation. And then he rose victorious to give you resurrection, new life. That's how with you he is. The virgin birth is a sign at the very beginning of what God is up to. I'm bringing life where there's only the presence of death. I'm bringing grace where there's only judgment, where there's only deserved judgment and real condemnation. So you don't have to be somebody. You don't have to make something of yourself. In fact, I would say that if you feel like nothing, if you feel like a nobody, you just qualified for God to rescue you because he has a serious habit of showing up in the nothingness. He has a serious habit of showing up in the impossible places. There's no way God could love me. That is impossible. God loves to show you what he can do. The virgin was pregnant with Emmanuel where there shouldn't be any life. There was life. Where you feel, I am nothing and I have nothing. God comes in and says, I'm with you. You have me. You have everything. Amen.